This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. My guest is Doug Kaufman, the independent concert promoter who helped turn Denver's live music scene into a national player with his company, Nobody in Particular Presents. Doug also served up a spanking to the corporate entertainment industry. They were trying to see how much they could get away with, and he didn't let them filing a federal antitrust lawsuit. Welcome, Doug. Thank you, G. Denver ranks as a top five concert market in the country, according to various music industry media. And that wasn't always the case. You planted the seeds long before it was a sure thing. You arrived here around the early 80s. A working musician or trying to work? I was living in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I moved to Gunnison and met a guitar player friend, Neil Grudson. He was working at a music store, and I just called him at the music store and said, is there any work for bass players out there? And he said, yeah, sure, come on out. And he was surprised that I showed up two weeks later. We just threw together a repertoire. It was all kinds of stuff that we collectively liked. It was bluesy, soul stuff, Detroit kind of music. He's from Royal Oak, outside of Detroit. We were working within three weeks and making $100 a piece. It was unbelievable. It was big money back then. It still is. Went from there to another band, then moved down to Boulder and played a band called The Works for almost two years and then moved to San Francisco. Just working bands and uh, auditioned for Chris Isaac's band. Didn't get the gig. Got frustrated. Moved back here and played with a band called Bob Street, who were like the Blasters. They were pretty much the most popular band in town at that point. Did that for a year and then started promoting shows. In the 70s, the concert business was more of a mom-and-pop enterprise, operated on a local basis. In different terms, the concert business was run like a cartel. Every promoter had their territory, and here in Denver, it was very fey. People always say, wow, it was just like the mob without the violence. I say, why do you put that qualifier on it? Everybody protected their own territory. It got split up basically by Frank Barcelona at Premier Talent in New York. He picked the guys that he was going to work with in every territory. Some guys were more aggressive than others. Bill Graham opened the Fillmore East and West, so he was probably Frank's favorite guy. And Barry had Denver, and there was no way that Frank Barcelona was working for anybody else besides the guys that he put in business in the first place. And he had every band. He signed everybody. The Who, Bruce Springsteen, Zeppelin, Tom Petty. Just a million of them, and he was the guy for a very long time. 
the music scene was defined by the big name, big money shows for the most part by the end of that decade. They were booking Mile High Stadium to the Rainbow Music Hall, which is now defunct. Very few promoters bothered to risk their money on smaller bands. That's what you changed. Yeah, I would say so. What was your mindset at the time? Did you see an opportunity? Were you just a music fan who wasn't seeing the acts you wanted to? It took a year before I even entertained the idea because I was playing in this band and we were going back and forth to Texas and California. And after a year of that, I decided that I would try to promote a show. The first one was John Cale from the Velvet Underground. At the Broadway. Yeah. Then Joe Ely. Then John Hyatt. And the Beat Farmers were after that. I did them at the Mercury Cafe upstairs at least eight times. Yeah, Country Dick, people were just throwing the beer at him. (laughs) And he eventually got skiing goggles that he would put on, and they would carry him around on the shoulders, and everybody was throwing the beer at him. And Marilyn, the former owner, she just sold the place. She would cut me a good deal out of the bar because people were just buying the beer to throw. (laughs) They weren't buying it to drink, you know. Oh, the happy boy. Happy boy, get it. Ain't it good when things are going your way? Hey, hey, all right, kazoo! It was easy to book these bands then. The Rainbow closed, and I was just doing shows in clubs like the Broadway, which is now 1082 Broadway, Herman's Hideaway, which only fit 150 people. Did people there like Jane's Addiction before the album came out, Widespread Panic, Blues Traveler, some bands that became really big. Just as the Rainbow closed, I rented out the Gothic Theater, And that gave me a real leg up on everything because there was no other venue in town at that point. I wasn't trying to book a lot of the fading hair metal bands of the era. It was all brand new music. Nirvana, Nine Inch Nails, Alice in Chains, the Beastie Boys, on and on and on. It was good timing for that. I was just doing the thousand seat thing and then started doing shows at Red Rocks and It was fortunate to have Red Rocks here. (laughs) It always has been. It's an open facility. Anybody can do shows there if you can get a date. It's just booked. Didn't you book Red Hot Chili Peppers early on? That was the next one right after the Beat Farmers. at the Aslan Theaters, four shows in clubs and then stepping up to a theater. And they did 650 people. No one really had caught on to them yet. They have now. Now they're playing stadiums. That brings up a point, booking music based on musical taste, what you want to see instead of the politics of it. Yeah, for as long as I could do it, it was just stuff that I liked. The Meat Puppets, John Hammond... Did a lot of folk stuff, Dave Van Ronk, Perubu, Alex Chilton, all the people that I loved. 
But sooner or later, you're going to run out of all the people you love, and you're going to have to start the grind of doing everything that comes down the pike to keep your room filled, which to me is just a pain in the ass, you know? (laughs) It really is. And I see people doing it now, and they're booking cover bands. There's plenty of great bands out there, and it seems like AEG is getting a lot of them because they have all the venues covered. But you see just how tough it is to keep a room filled with interesting content these days. I don't envy them at all. (laughs) No. It comes down to the rooms, inextricably tied to that. You acquired the Ogden Theater and then partnered with Chris Swank, who was the owner of the Bluebird Theater. Early on, you got the help of someone who wound up being a fairly big political figure. I still had the Gothic, and I couldn't get a liquor license there down in Inglewood. There was a church 1,500 feet away, and they came out in protest against it. (laughs) The Ogden was just sitting there for two and a half years, awaiting the wrecking ball. And so I went to the city, and the city loaned me the money to buy the Ogden. And I had that for five years or so before Chris came along. And then John Hickenlooper was in private business at the Wine Coop. He told one of my employees that if he ever needs any help, tell him to come see me. (laughs) And so... He loaned me money to buy the PA instead of renting it. Just was real supportive and didn't ask for any collateral, didn't ask for anything. He helped out, and then we ended up doing a show together at Red Rocks with the Spin Doctors and Cracker and the Gin Blossoms later on. Yeah, he was a big help. Ogden and the Bluebird, two theaters that are now on the National Registry of Historic Places. In the 90s, they hadn't been transformed. They were dilapidated. They were on Colfax Avenue, which wasn't necessarily the place to be. Yeah, I found a picture of the Ogden recently and looked at it with a for sale sign on the marquee. It was such a dilapidated old theater. Took about six months to get that open, which was a miracle in a way because things take a lot longer with the building department these days. That was the summer of 1993, the summer of violence, they called it. A lot of gangbangers moved here from LA, and there was all kinds of shootings and murders and trouble down there in Aurora, all over the place, really. Just about as hairy as it is now, though. I'm not kidding. True. I kind of sugarcoat it. It's a tough neighborhood now. People just come there to see shows, and they leave, though. So there hasn't been any problems with customers down there so far. So you have the venues, and now every band coming across I-70 on a tour gets to play your places where they weren't able to fill the bigger rooms. They've got a prominent stage. You started adding tiny rooms through Nobody in Particular Presents, the Lion's Lair. Mm -hmm. Built up things to where your company was booking at its peak 500 shows a year? Yeah, 500 or so. The Gothic, the owner, did a beautiful rehab on the building and... 
he rejoined us, so we had all three again. For a long time, I was doing almost everything at Mammoth Event Center, too. That was sold to SFX at the time, who rolled well, up the concert business and turned it into the Fillmore. You were known for your savvy billings, bands on the way up, and predicated on loyalty to a degree. Yeah, that was one thing that was an unwritten rule that if you did a band, especially if you started out doing them early on, you would maintain the history with the band. When the SFX roll-up came, that was the bad part of the whole thing because loyalty went out the window. (laughs) They came in with a lot of money, and they were hard to compete with, so you had to mutate and do something else or do other things. Found the Botanic Gardens contract. It was up for bid. I booked that for 10 years, which really kept our company going. Really great thing. Almost every single show sold out in those 10 years. Ray Charles, that was at the Temple Events Center. I did 12 Kill Scott Heron dates. Those were all memorable. People like the Allman Brothers at Red Rocks, I loved them since I was in high school, and that fell in my lap just because of circumstances and ended up doing 16 shows with them there over the years. The Beck shows, Rollins with Tool, warming up at the Gothic. That was a fun, wild show. Joe Walsh at the Gothic. Pre-rehab Joe Walsh. (laughs) That was fun just because he could play, even though he probably wasn't in the best shape he'd ever been in. (laughs) said, it's an honor to have you play my theater, Joe. And he said, wait till I play, Dougie. We'll see if it's an honor. I got in an argument with a guy online. He said, Joe Walsh didn't play the Gotham. I said, yeah, he did. Believe me, he did. I promise you, he did. Pearl Jam played up at CU in November of 1993. They'd been booked for a three-night stand. First night goes okay. Second Mm -hmm. night, the band kind of got miffed. 
the band was all about the mosh pit, and so they started criticizing the security from the stage. The next day, they met with you and the school and tried to come with some resolution. They ended up just canceling that third night and rescheduled it. That was the security company. They were sending security into the pit to keep people from moshing. (laughs) Anybody that's seen Pearl Jam knows that it's not some violent mosh pit. It wasn't any big deal, but they created a big deal. And Eddie, the singer, grabbed one of the guy's headsets and flipped him off into the crowd. And everybody at the CU administration completely overreacted to the situation. They had a big meeting the next day where we all met. One of the regents showed up and started yelling at everybody, and that was it. Just a typical overreaction of people that didn't understand what was going on. The joys of being a promoter, right? Yeah, yeah. I try to talk everybody out of canceling the show because there's 3,800 people lined up outside. They were already there. It was a GA show. Common sense did not prevail. That was it. The band felt that... They had too much to lose. They're one of the biggest bands in the world at the time. They're doing this underplay, doing a favor by playing three nights in a 3,800-seat place, and it just got out of hand for no reason at all. And then they agreed to keep security out of the mosh pit because there wasn't really much of a mosh pit. There were some people going around in a circle. It was nothing. And instead the band elected to not play under those kind of circumstances. And they came back later and did it at the Paramount Paramount Theater, which wasn't really... (laughs) There wasn't a mosh pit there. There was no mosh pit there. All tickets were refunded, but I just sat there mortified as the whole thing fell apart for no reason at all. You know, I was listening to late 70s stuff before I left Michigan, and it was Foreigner and Boston and things like that, and I listened to a lot of Southern rock, but the people I discovered when I moved out here was Garland Jeffries, Graham Parker and the Rumor, Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers, the Blasters, and all of those acts played at the Lair multiple times which doesn't say a hell of a lot for their career expansion in their fan base because the place fits 120 people, you know. Garland Jeffries twice. Loudon Wainwright, too. It wasn't his kind of place. <laughs> Not at all. He's used to playing theaters in Europe. But Graham Parker probably played there five times. X with John Doe. Great singer, man. He just keeps going. The last time he played there, I said, man, this is the 30th time you've sold this club out. And he said... I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. (laughs) 
She said his first name is Homeboy. I said, could his last name be Trouble? See how we are. Homeboy is not one of those Long Beach ghetto names. See how we are. We only sing about him once in every 20 years. See how we are. In the mid-90s, the beginning of the modern corporate concert industry started out when Congress enacted the Telecommunications Act. 1996, Clear Channel began acquiring broadcasting and entertainment companies. There were once 70 separate broadcasting entities in the United States. Clear Channel ended up owning 1,200 radio stations, eight of them here in Denver, five of them FM stations, four of them had a rock format, KBCO, KBPI, KTCL, and the Fox. And at the same time, the concert acquisitions began. SFX became the largest concert producer and entertainment promoter in the nation. SFX and Clear Channel at that point were separate entities. They eventually merged. The whole SFX roll-up was designed to create this whole huge conglomerate of promoters. And of course, it was a force to be reckoned with. They paid top dollar for all these promoters way more than they were worth. So a lot of these promoters that have been around forever sold their companies to them because the deals were too good to turn down. So that, you know, that was created and then eventually sold for a huge profit. Robert Sillerman, who was the head of SFX, turned around and flipped it to Universal House of Blues concerts. Then they in turn sold it to Clear Channel. Were you ever tendered an offer at any point of that? I was, there were a couple of other offers that came down to go to work for some of these bigger entities, but I'm just not cut out to work for anybody. That's <laughs> what it comes down to, really. Someone had to cry BS on this, and your legacy ended up impacting concert promotion around the world to some degree. It, and- it did in the United States, for sure. In 2001, you called out Clear Channel Communications. It was an antitrust violations lawsuit? Yes, it was a federal court case. The lawsuit dragged on for three years. Clear Channel was combining its radio stations and concert promotion arm, and Live Nation, the concert promotion arm at that point. Yep. They were just trying to discourage competition. They wanted an entertainment monopoly to take shape, but they made decisions about which songs they were going to play on their radio stations based on what concerts Clear Channel was or wasn't promoting. They used their position of power to intimidate and coerce the artists and their record labels into signing with Clear Channel. And if they didn't, Clear Channel wouldn't pay them, and they exploited the relationship to book concerts. And artists would not get airplay unless Clear Channel was allowed to promote the concerts. The director of programming for the five Clear Channel FM stations, she'd punish people by not playing their records, leveraging the playlist to freeze out the competition, which was you. Artists were told to avoid using you as their promoter to avoid losing airplay. And I heard the quote, let's get out the fuck sticks. House of Blues had already sold to Clear Channel, and they played hardball, and the quotes were handed over in the discovery process. And I guess it just shows. Never put anything down in an email and send it to anybody. (laughs) That much I know because that is public record. 
It's part of the uh, summary judgment motion that came down from a federal judge in court here in Denver. There were several of those smoking gun emails. I don't think it did them any favors at all. You went at them through legal channels, but I always maintained that if human resources existed with any clout back then, guys never would have gotten out of the gate. The way that they did not invest anything in improving their product, but just going after the competition in the most venal ways, they're just deplorable folks. Yeah, there was a quote from one of the people that worked there. It's like, not only do I want to destroy my competition, I want to see them laying in the gutter, penniless, broke, and ruined. <laughs> That's the, the whole thing with radio at that point had become this war, just this weird bunch of thuggery going on. It's not like that so much anymore. It got cleaned up, just like the concert industry got cleaned up. It is what it is, and when you do shows, everybody knows where they stand. But back then, it was a real mess, and someone had to step up and file a lawsuit to try to even the playing field. Were you the recipient of what they called pranks? I was not. I know that there was one on Thanksgiving or something. Once they dumped a truckload of rocks in front of the box office of a competitor so that yeah. the patrons couldn't... Yeah, they were doing things like that, and... I don't know, I guess their jobs, their livelihoods depended on winning in the ratings through any means possible. I don't know if dumping a truckload of rocks on someone's doorstep or whatever is going to really get you anywhere. There were those kind of ridiculous things going on. The other one was 100 pounds of rotten fish dumped in the loading area for some band that wasn't playing for. Yeah, (laughs) I can't remember where that happened, but that was allegedly one of the things that they were doing. And some of these guys are still in radio. One of them, I think he's the program director at a country station in Des Moines or something. (laughs) Man, I don't know. I don't know what happens to these people. It didn't look like a fun occupation to be working in. Oh, it was so musical, Doug. Yeah, yeah, and (laughs) arguably you could say that it changed radio for the worse. And you see these playlists now, they're programmed out of one place. I think that's why radio has lost a lot of its listenership and people have gone to other things like streaming and anything else. There are lots of other avenues to listen to music and people are they're going for them people aren't they're they're tuning out radio to a large extent although i still listen to it and it's still a valuable resource for certain things to promote certain artists back then it was just called clear channel communications and then they changed it to live nation afterwards iheart and live nation are two separate things clear channel has essentially changed its name to iheart so hard to keep track of. They had a bankruptcy, I guess, which they've emerged from. I've never understood how they avoided those balloon payments after overpaying for all that stuff in the first place. The deregulation of the number of stations that you could own, I don't know, was it passed through the Senate or Congress? I'm not sure. It was Congress. It was during the Clinton administration, and it was like on page 76 of the larger legislation package. Really? It was just a little codicil in there that ended up screwing up the entire industry. It really did. It really did. It had a huge effect on how tough it is for bands to 
get Airplay to begin with, but they've found ways around it, and that's touring. They tour relentlessly, and that's how they make their money because they're not going to make it from record sales. Whoever thought that all the record companies would fold into one, Universal. Didn't see that coming, but <laughs> a lot of things have changed in the last 20 years. Nobody in particular presents, settled out of court. Clear Channel was pressured, either internally or whatever, into divesting Live Nation. They didn't want further scrutiny for this kind of stuff. Is that accurate? Uh, according to my lawyer, John Francis, it was. You had to be exhausted, though. NIPP bore the legal costs. You're going up um, against these well-funded lawyers on retainer, these we, antitrust um, lawsuits, hard to prove we, in court. Right? Yeah, our lawyers gave us a deal where they worked for us on a percentage basis, but it still cost us everything we had at that point. We got in a lot of debt, and it was just a mess. Those were um, tough times. I don't miss them. <laughs> <laughs> But there's an interesting subset, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but you agreed to lease the Bluebird and the Ogden to AEG Presents. Yeah, that came about two and a half years after the settlement of that lawsuit. Unexpectedly, Don Strasberg, Brent Fadrizi, and Chuck Morris all left one day. <laughs> left Live Nation, Clear Channel, whatever you want to call it. They were hired away by AEG. At that point, we thought, well... This is a great opportunity for us now, so we took it. There was no choice because it would be taking on two multi-billion dollar companies. Look at AEG. They just built the Mission Ballroom in a partnership, I believe, with some other real estate person. I'm not sure how it works and don't know what their deal is. But you don't want to sit around while they find somewhere else to do these shows. They were able to come in and take the Ogden and compete against the Fillmore with it and prevail. AEG's got very deep pockets, too. Yes. <laughs> and they're a privately owned company. We didn't really have a choice at that point. We had to take a deal. Live Nation and AEG Presents are the corporate promoters, but you still get to be a gatekeeper of sorts. Yeah, my partner, Chris Swank, and myself, he owns the Bluebird. I own the Ogden. Since AEG has come in and programmed them so well, it's done wonders for those buildings. They treat them like they're their own. They put a lot of money into them. They've increased the value of those buildings tremendously. So it was a good thing. You know, and no one wanted to work all this time and end up broke either. <laughs> so that was another factor. <laughs> Could an independent promoter break through in this current climate? The Oriental Theater is independently run by a partnership. Peter Orr worked for me for six years. Is He's an independent promoter. I think they're doing fine with what they have. It's a great building, 700 capacity. It's great. And starting from scratch, there's still people out there that are finding acts that no one's heard of yet, and they're going to be up against it when those acts get bigger. There is a dominant force in the market now, and that is AEG. In this market? In this market, and that's not every market. A lot of markets, Live Nation is dominant. And they're I all mean, over the place. They're in Asia. They're in Europe. Very aggressive. It's almost a parallel. Instead of radio and promoters, it's 
ticketing and promoters. Another antitrust or a monopolistic play. A lot of tickets get farmed out to secondary brokers like StubHub and credit card companies that are sponsors. I don't know how many. Before it all goes on sale and a lot of tickets are pulled out of the manifest and sold at a profit, the artists are in on this. They get a piece of that extra profit, that markup on the ticket that StubHub is paying. So everybody's in on that. Live Nation owns Ticketmaster, so that's quite a uh, partnership, if you will. I have this thing where I get older, but just never wiser. Midnight's become my afternoon. I think with Taylor Swift, they just, I don't know how. Someone had to get fired for that. They underestimated how big she was. They farmed out too many tickets, and there weren't enough tickets left for the public to buy. And they're expensive anyways, and they're pricing normal people with normal incomes out of the market. And that is what is ruining the concert business right there, in my opinion. Seeing bands in a smaller club at a reasonable ticket price, that's one thing. But going to an arena or a stadium show, seeing somebody from a mile away and you're paying with service charges $190 a ticket, that's just the ruination of the concert business. That's what I think. So I love Happy Ending, Doug. You spend your time these days making music again. I just recorded a bunch of stuff. It's been a little while since this was finished, right around when the pandemic hit. I'm just getting it out there on all the platforms where people can find new music. That's what I have to get done. I need somebody to help me do it. Maybe you'll sign a deal with that one remaining major label. (laughs) I doubt it. I I doubt it. It's a mix of singer-songwriter folk and soul. banjo and a lawsuit have in common? I don't know, Doug. Well, everybody's relieved when the case is closed. (laughs) (laughs) Although I like banjo playing a lot better than I like lawsuit. (laughs) The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C-O-L-O music.org. Terrapin Care Station is a Boulder-based, vertically integrated, consumer-focused cultivator, processor, and provider of high-quality medical and recreational cannabis products. Terrapin loves music and is proud to partner with Colorado Music Experience to educate the public on everything great about our state's music history. It adds significant cultural value across Colorado, solidifying our state's position as a leader. 
Follow Terrapin on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit terrapincarestation.com. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.